Good morning, friends. Uh, good morning and welcome again to the Gita Memoirs of a Psychiatrist. Today, I have to thank Lou. Are you there, Lou? I, I am. I'm here, ready to go right. this morning. Okay, good. Is my mic working? It is. It's a new adventure for both of us this morning. Yes, and thanks to Lou, we have a new system here that because of coronavirus, we're all stuck at home. So am <laughs> I. And Lou has been kind enough to find this whole new system that seems to be working very well. We just have to get through the little glitches that one faces anytime that we start something new. Anyway, right. we can't be we can't be attached to the past, right? We have to just... <laughs> no attachment, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, we've been talking about chapter six, and we're going to continue today with chapter six, verses ten through eighteen. And this chapter six is the yoga of meditation, dhyana yoga, in Sanskrit, and these. Um, this meditation has to be gotten to the point where you first got rid of all your desires, all your vasanas, uh, your attachment to the external world, your sense organs, etc., before you can do a meditation. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't practice it because at least you're getting your mind calmer while you're practicing it. Somebody, one of the listeners wrote to me and said, you know, I'm so fed up. My mind is constantly racing. I have thoughts. I'm sitting there for meditation. Am I just wasting my time? And if you think that you're going to want to get to self-realization in this lifetime, yeah, perhaps that you're not going to do it in this lifetime. However, by each time you do this, you are getting to extend those periods of mental silence. You'll see. And we'll talk about this during the next uh, few verses. So verse 10 to 18, basically, Krishna, the Gita, teaches us external disciplines that we need to use for uh, meditation and internal disciplines that we need to use for meditation. So verse 10 says, let the yogi remaining in solitude or rahasi alone, ekaki, seated with mind and body controlled, constantly practice union with the self, free from desire and possession. So there's quite a few things here, as in every verse of the Gita, that if you parse it word for word, it'll take a long time to go <laughs> over. So I'm, I'm not going to do that. But when he says one thing that struck me, constantly practicing union with the self, it's not something you can do once in the morning for a half hour and once in the evening for a half hour and expect to get self-realized. You know, all the masters in every religion, have gone away for 12 years before they became uh, self-realized. It's a curious fact that whether you think of Jesus or Moses or Buddha or any uh, self-realized person, the, the number that comes up is always 12 years. And they go to a place up in the mountains, which is the solitude, and they sit alone and they practice meditation. So that's what this verse is telling us, what to do, where to go, how to do it. And as I had said before in our previous verses, this is the original treatise on meditation. So let's go through this. Mm -hmm. So when a person reaches the right state of mind, he has renounced his desires, only then he can meditate. So the yogi transcends the karma yoga and now is a dhyana yogi. That means he, he's done his karma and he does his selfless sacrifice work that helps him to get rid of his vasanas, he becomes, becomes a yogi, and then he sits in a quiet, solitary place. He quietens the mind, 
and is free from desires and possessiveness. Only then can you meditate. It needs us to shift our mind from the world into our own self. So we'll be talking about what this rahasi, which is solitude, means. Solitude, why? Because you want to block off the external disturbance. No solid, no noise in the same place all the time. You can't keep switching places. Right. Um, the reason for that is that it distracts you. If you're used to a same place, quiet, where you, and rahasi also means secret. You don't tell everybody, so they come and visit you and look from <laughs> the distance, oh, he's meditating. So you know that nobody's going to come there. It's the same place, same time of day. Everything has to be the same. Um, ekaki means alone, not only from alone from noise and from people, not in company, but alone. Uh, many times in these days, you get meditation classes where there's 20 other people meditating. And that's fine for us as beginners. But as time goes on, one needs this quietitude. Um, so nothing belongs to me in this case, nothing. Not even me. You don't think I am. There's no I there. It's just the am. That's the chit, chit uh, consciousness, mm -hmm. um, the existence, sat. I am is not the case. It is just am. Um, so that's what verse 10 is. And so sorry, friends, this is going to be a little bit of repetition, and I'll try to go through it quickly so you don't um, have to be bothered with the things again and again. But it still is the Gita. It's the master, so you need to put up with this. Sorry. <laughs> so in verse 11, he says, Having established in a clean place, a pure place, a firm seat of his own, neither too high nor too low, with cloth, skin, and kusa, grass thereon, kusha, kusha grass thereon. So he's talking about, you, you can't sit in a place, just like I tell my grandchildren all the time, when you want to study, your desk should not be cluttered, you shouldn't be all dirty and messy right. and crumbs all over, because your mind can't focus, at least my mind can't focus. Um, you need to get your life in order, your desk in order, everything in order before you can actually sit down and concentrate on whatever it is that you're doing. Similarly, with meditation, you need a clean place, a pure place, a place that you're familiar with, that you go to all the time, a firm seat of his own, not something that is too hard, where you keep poking, get gets poked because of the hard stone that you're sitting on, or too soft, where you're sinking, and that's not comfortable either. Neither too high where you feel, oh my goodness, I'm going to fall because with my eyes closed for a long period of time, right. I don't feel steady. Nor too low where there's dampness coming from the ground or insects. And in those days, they used to have skin, animal skin. Like you see a lot of Shiva and other uh, gods are portrayed sitting on a tiger skin or deer skin. So he says cloth, skin, and kusha grass. Now, kusha grass is very rampant in Africa. I guess it was also rampant in India at that time. I don't know what kusha grass is. <laughs> but they called, when the Indians went to Africa, they called the grass there kusha grass. And that's why it was called, the, the people from there were called the Kushites. I see. Um, and, and Rama's son is also known as kusha. And apparently, Rama had given Africa to his son Kusha. So that's why the grass was called Kusha. Well, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> but anyway, at that time, when the Gita was written, 
this was the practice to use cloth, skin, and kusha grass. So sit on it and you become comfortable. So you're neither hot and the, the whatever you use should be not a good conductor of temperature. So the heat in the summer doesn't come through, uh, mm -hmm. nor does the cold in the winter come through. So, and the uh, in Sanskrit, it says that the seat has to be sthiram sukham, meaning it's steady and comfortable. So mm -hmm. you can't sit in a place that's uncomfortable. Um, so, um, um, so this is, this is about most about what we're talking about is um, dealing with your sense organs, right? Especially the ones that you can't necessarily control, like smell and hearing and your skin and touching. So you want to reduce the stimulation as much as possible. Yes. You, it, it's talking about, yes, you're absolutely right. When you're sitting someplace, if you smell odors, you smell either uh, dirt or whatever, that's distracting to you. You see things that are distracting to you. You hear noises, you know, you can't meditate. So similarly with the sense organs of the touch, mm. the, Yoga that most people practice in studios, you know, where they do asanas is essentially meant at that time to keep your body in shape because this meditation that these yogis did was day after day, all day. There's, there's a video on YouTube called, uh, I think it's called Cave in the Snow. And mm. it talks about a young girl who's 18 years old. She's in England. And she says, there's something within me that's drawing me to the northern part of the Himalayas, and I need to go there. So she left home on her own, got on a plane, landed in Delhi, didn't know anybody, or trekked all the way to the Himalayas, and went to a monastery, a Tibetan monastery, and said, I want to study with you. Those people had no idea, had never seen um, a woman in, a, in their monastery before, but mm -hmm. she insisted. And so they said, fine. You have to practice, but you have to go to a cave in the mountains, as we do. And you have to stay there 12 years. So she actually graduated, became a monk, the first female monk that she talks about. And now she goes all over the world uh, as a proponent of this and teaches meditation to other women and produces women, uh, female monks. Yep. Um, oh, the other thing that one of the listeners had asked is, you know, the Gita is very anti-woman, isn't it? It's pro-man. And it's not true. Really? Um, yeah. yeah. Because women have been allowed inside uh, monasteries and tasks. It's just that more women prefer not to do it. But there are many women who are yoginis, who are swamis, and who teach their own ashrams. And it's uh, th this discrimination towards women, at least not in those days. Now it may be different. But in those days, women were respected tremendously. There were goddesses, um, and, and you considered a lot of women as your mother, and we gave a tremendous amount of respect. Anyway, this woman from Britain went up there, and she, in this video, Cave in the Snow, she shows how she lived over there. She was a yogi. So all these yogis basically are able to control their bodies, and there are other um, other videos on YouTube that show how these yogis live in minus 20, minus 30 degrees centigrade with just a loincloth around. 
So their bodies are in complete control. To load, yeah. to answer your question about sense organs, yes, the yoga helps them to control their physical body, muscles, bones, skin, uh, temperature regulation, etc. And then, of course, the sense organs, which are the eyes, you keep them closed, you keep uh, try not to smell things because you're sitting in a place that has no smells and, and noises, etc. So verse 12 and 13 are read together. And verse 12 says, there, having made, there meaning the place where he's sitting, having made the mind one-pointed with the functions of the mind and senses controlled and seated on the seat, let him practice yoga for self-purification. Verse 13 says, holding his body and his head and neck erect, still and firm, gazing at the tip of the nose and not looking around. So this now says there's no more distraction from the outside, as we said before, no more distraction from the body, no more distraction from the senses. Focus on the mind and thoughts and objects. Now, meditation, this Gita gives you uh, one way of doing it, which is to focus on the center of the, he says the tip of the nose. He doesn't mean the tip of the nose here, right? Uh, but the tip of the nose at its beginning. In Sanskrit, the translation is a little different, but the words in Sanskrit, uh, if I can find them here, uh, I may not be able to find it. <laughs> but anyway, it's, it's, the, it's called the beginning of the nose. And People misunderstand that to mean tip of the nose, but the beginning of the nose is really technically uh, between the eyebrows. And we did that in chapter five, where he talks about specifically says begin uh, between the two eyebrows. Right. So the point is to focus on one point, focus on any one point and such as breathing. So when I first learned meditation, the guru that taught me was actually an American woman in, um, in India, in Mumbai. And uh, I was uh, in my teenage years, and she focused on breathing. And it, it's a good way to distract. So the mind, the intellect, needs one thing to focus on. So she used to say, block your left nostril, breathe in through your right, and count four times that before it goes in, and then hold both nostrils closed, count to four, breathe out through the left nostril, count to four, close both nostrils. Now it gets to be pretty complicated, right? Yep. What happens is your intellect is focused so much on the breathing and the counting that it doesn't have time to think about the past or the future. You're focused on, on, on that. Right. And essentially that's what the Gita is saying too, that just keep your mind occupied, your intellect occupied. And there's a reason for this. The intellect is only job, main job is to focus between this or that. Is this good? Is this bad? Is this honor? Is this dishonor? And that's what it does. If the intellect is sort of blocked between saying, I don't know what to think about, then it's confused and yeah. you can reach the uh, Atman. So the concept of meditation is, one of the concepts that the Gita talks about, is that you say a mantra. Say a mantra, say it out loud, and you keep concentrating on the mantra. And the mantra gets softer and softer as you practice. And at some point, as you're thinking about the mantra, the intellect concentrate on the mantra, then you say soft, then you pause. There's silence. The intellect is saying, what, what happened here? Then you start the mantra again and focuses. 
You keep doing that until at some point you just stop the mantra completely and the intellect is silenced. That's what the uh, Gita says. Mm -hmm. So the mental activity then is restrained. There's no going into the past or the future. You concentrate your mind on one place like your breath and uh, focus on your eyes on the nose. That, why breath? Because it doesn't carry. You know, we talked about the Prakriti where past impressions are carved into that hard drive. The one thing that is not carved into the hard drive from previous um, lives is your breath. Mm -hmm. Because you breathe in every previous life, but it's not carved into your Prakriti. So you can think about other things and it'll stir up memories of various things. If you think about food or you think about any other thing, it will stir up all kinds of memories. You focus on the breath and it will not bring up any other impressions. Um, so we talked about all of this. I wanted to tell you, I started to say that when I first learned meditation, it was focusing on the breathing. There are other techniques that I learned from other people. One other technique was you concentrate on Om. You draw the figure Om, which is like a, a, a number three, and then a dot on the top. And my teacher used to say, focus on this Om or the dot, and just keep your eyes focused on that. And when you think that you can now picture this clearly in your mind with your eyes closed, close your eyes. Mm -hmm. And I used to close my eyes and focus on looking at that Om with the closed eyes. And then other thoughts would come. And he says, as soon as the other thoughts come, open your mind and look at the Om again. And then when you think you've got it, close your eyes. And, and you keep practicing this until you can keep that Om clearly inside your eyes, your mind, and not think of anything else for longer and longer periods of time. Oh, interesting. The third technique was with a candle. Now, all religions have candles in front of them when they're praying. And this is an old, old Hindu technique, which you stare at a wick of a candle that's lit, lit and you look at the flame and it's flickering and you keep looking at the flame as it's flickering and you hope that it stills. When it stills, you're looking at the wick you're looking at the flame and you close your eyes and you keep the flame inside. Same thing as the, with the Om. You keep the picture of the flame in your eyes and then you open it. You, when your other thoughts come into your mind, you open it, look at the wick again and then close your eyes again. Um, so that's verse 13 and 14. Verse 15, sorry, verse 14 says, serene-minded, fearless, Firm in the vow of celibacy, which is in Sanskrit known as brahmacharya. Firm in the vow of celibacy, the mind control thinking on me with a capital M. Let him sit seeking union with me as a capital M as the supreme. So again, it says keeping the body, ne head, neck straight with the prana. The pranas are moving smoother within yourself. Why do you keep your body and mind and neck erect? Is because the life force within you, the pranas, apparently move smoother. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately when you're getting into that state where you're getting to the Atman, that is called Turiya, which means fourth, fourth state. The three states are being awake, being in a dream state, and being in a deep sleep state. Those are the three states that we know. The fourth state, which we don't know, is Turiya. So when you do this, um, 
Oh, sorry. The uh, term that I was looking for before is nasika agram, when, and where the tip of the nose or the beginning of the nose. Oh, I see. Yeah. Now, in here it says, being firm in the vow of celibacy, which we, in Sanskrit is brahmacharya, it does not mean, I, when I grew up, everybody told me that brahmacharya meant that you do not indulge in any physical relief for your sensual organs. Right. Uh, so you're like a bachelor. That is a misconception. I've heard again and again from many teachers that brahmacharya does not mean forced denial of sensual or sexual objects. It means a natural control over the senses, all your senses, not just the sensual or sexual. Right. Why? Because once appreciation and identification with the higher values of life come through as a brahmacharya, it means one who chooses to walk the path of Brahma. So in this case, you have to have prashant atma, which means a peaceful mind, uh, and vigata bhya, meaning freedom from fear. He says fearless in English, but it really means freedom from any anxiety or fear or anticipation and established in the vow of one who walks the path of Brahma. Once that decision is made, that that's what you're going to do, it changes take place in the body uh, and in the mind and in the intellect. So the anxiety disappears. It In me, when, when Krishna says, the mind control thinking on me, with a capital M, let him sit seeking union with me, he means place your mind and become conscious of consciousness. Me, in this case, refers to consciousness, the chit, the existence. You are the Atman, you are Sat, you are Chit, you are um, Anand. You are the existence, you are the consciousness, you are happiness. You just And Swami uh, Parthasarthi says, he gives an example that if you need, like, like with a, uh, a chamber of some kind, like a bullet, uh, or a gun chamber, you notice that you have a cylinder that needs to go inside this hole, right? Both very smooth, but if you if the cylinder happens to be rusted and uh, scratched up, it's not going to go in. But if you s use sandpaper and smooth it out, and you put grease on it and put grease inside the cylinder, it goes very smoothly inside. So he says, all you have to do is to get yourself to this position and then Turiya itself will bring you in. You don't have to do much more. It's like what we talked about in the previous episode where when you go to sleep, if I said to you, go to sleep, mm -hmm. there's no switch that you have. Right. You can only make your bed, put your pillow down, take a blanket, lay down, close your eyes and get ready for sleep. Then sleep has to take you over. Sleep comes. You don't make it come. It just comes automatically. Similarly with meditation, going into Turiya, Turiya draws you in. You can't do it, but you just have to prepare yourself for it. So verse 15 says, thus, constantly seeking union with the self, the yogi, with his mind controlled, attains peace, culminating in supreme bliss, which abides in me, with a capital M. Again, that's the Anand, Sat. Chit Anand. 
As explained in the previous verses, you have to meditate on the Atman. There's a difference between thinking of something and paying attention to something. We've addressed this before, and it's important to notice here that you don't need your eyes, your mind, your ears, your smell, nothing for a meditation. In fact, you shouldn't be like when I want something, I have to make an effort to get it, right? If I want to gain power, I have to do political moves to get power. If I want wealth, I have to do business. If I want to achieve the Atman, I have to do the exact opposite. (laughs) I do nothing. So when your mind is still and it's not distracted, obviously it's laser sharp to focus on anything that you choose. So it's important to keep in mind that when you want something, you think of nothing else, your mind becomes extremely sharp And at that point, you want to keep the mind totally bank and let the intellect go completely focusing on reaching the Atman. So um, the analogy is that of a child crying for its mother. Mm -hmm. Crying, crying, crying. Nothing can satisfy it, you know. And and you can use a ball or a a toy and say, here, take this. And maybe the child will be satisfied for a short period of time. But ultimately, until the mother comes, the child is not satisfied. And when the mother comes, child puts his head on her shoulder and falls asleep in an instant. Right. Same thing with, uh, say, sleep or hunger. You are so sleepy. You have not been sleeping for 24 hours. You've been a resident. You've been on call and you come home and is, okay, listen, have some food. No, I just want to sleep. Here, read this letter that you got. I just want to sleep. Nothing pacifies you. Only you need sleep. That is the condition you need to be in for you to be able to reach Turiya, which is all you want now at this point. Your all your desires are crystallized and focused into one desire, which is to reach the Atman. So, verse sixteen, and, and ironically, for humans, you know, for people, ironically, that's something you can't achieve through your sense organs, which is why it's important to create that separation and control over your sense organs. Absolutely, because we are so used to using our sense organs and our organs of action, arms, legs, feet, uh, voice box, to try and get something that we think, okay, to reach Atman, I have to use my organs of action, my voice box, my mind, my organs of perception. But that's not the case. As you say, we need to actually get away from that. So verse 16 and 17, prepare a person to sit and meditate. His activities are regulated. His sleep and wake is balanced and he becomes free of desires and vasanas. So here he brings up the question of appetite, eating, and sleep in order to meditate. So what what does that say? It's very interesting. Verse 16, verily yoga is not for him who eats too much or doesn't eat at all, nor for him who sleeps too much or keeps awake. This is This is on the surface, you say, "Eh, that makes sense to me. Uh, You know, you eat too much, your stomach is going to be full, your stomach is growling, you can't meditate. Or you eat too little, you're hungry, so you're constantly thinking of hunger, um, and, and therefore you can't meditate. All of both those are true. But what he's saying is that you have to have a balanced life. And as in other instances, the Gita is very succinct when it uses a 
one term, it means many others at the same time. Right. When it uses the symbol of three, it means body, mind, intellect. When it uses the symbol 10, it means the five organs of perception and the five organs of action. When it talks about intake of food, it means not only food, but also all the other sense organs and my body, mind, and intellect. So it says the food, the first one, you have to take the right type of food. It, you have to have, be balanced in what kind of food you take if you want to meditate. You, if you eat too spicy food, it's going to disturb you. If you eat right. totally bland food, it's going to disturb you. So it's got to be the right type of food and the right amount. You can't fast for religious reasons. I know growing up, I saw a lot of my relatives fasting almost to death, nine days of fasting wow. without with just drinking water. I mean, Jesus was the um, uh, chief of the, what tribe is it? The, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll think of it. The uh, Essenes, Essenes. He was the chief of the Essenes. And he, anybody to become the chief, you had to fast for 42 days or 40 wow. days. Yeah. Not eating anything and only drinking water. So that, um, the Gita says, if you fast for religious reasons, during the time you're fasting, you won't be able to meditate. Right. If you eat too much, you eat the wrong kind of food, you won't be able to meditate. So then you have to say, when he says, the Gita says, Krishna says, food, it also means smells. You have to regulate and balance what you take in in terms of smells, sights, taste, touch, and sound. You have to regulate that. Not too much of this, not too little, not the right kind of sound, not rock music that is going to stimulate you and titillate you, but yeah. peaceful music. Same thing with m the mind, feelings and emotions, not too much, not too little, not too harsh, not too loving. Uh, intellect, thoughts and ideas, same. Control those thoughts, control those ideas and not have them be agitating you. Um, then comes the sleep, not for him who sleeps too much or keeps awake. What does that mean? It means that when, first of all, on the very surface, on the very top superficial surface, somebody who's sleeping can't meditate. And somebody who needs sleep desperately because he's awake too long also can't meditate. And right. that's at the superficial level. Um, but he's also talking about contact with the world. If So being awake, one is usually in contact with the world. Right. So he's saying, when you're asleep, you're completely out of contact with the world. When you're awake, you're in too much contact with the world. So same as with any sense contacts or food, smells, sights, etc. If you have too much of it, you can't meditate. Here he's saying if you are too much into the world because you're too quote-unquote awake, you cannot meditate. But if you go completely before you're ready into the Himalayas and you're totally alone by yourself and you have zero contact with the world, unless you're ready for it, he says, you won't be able to meditate. So right. this is to warn and caution other people that says, you know, well, Mo Moses went to Mount Sinai and he stayed there for all this time and he meditated. I'm going to go to a mountain. You're not ready for it. You're going right. to go crazy and it won't help. Um, it sounds like he's describing, uh, the verses are describing here for people who don't have control over their desires. Correct. So yeah. he's saying until you get control of your desires and you get to be a little more mature, ready for this, 
just be careful. This is, as I said, verse 16 and 17 were to prepare you for um, to, the, to be able to sit and meditate so that your activities are regulated, your sleep and waking are uh, balanced and you're free. So verse 17 says, to him who is regulated in eating and recreation, eating and recreation, meaning right. play and uh, fun, etc., regulated in his action, who is regulated in sleeping and waking, yoga destroys sorrow. So you may say, what, what is he talking about? <laughs> recreation, uh, food, ahara. He talks about ahara, which means food. Regulated in eating, which is eating of food. Regulated in his recreation, which is um, fun. And regulated in his karma or work. What he's saying here is the three things that we all do. We take in food, we digest it, and we act because of the energy that it produces, right? right? So that's the three things that happen in everything that we do. We take in a stimulus, just like food. I see something and I say, wow, that's attractive. The analogy I gave in the last episode was I'm walking down a crowded street in India and I say, oh, this is where I used to get gulab jamun, the sweets that I used to love. And where's that store? And my eyes are looking for it. Right. My eyes see it and I say, oh, there it is. What happens is my mind says, okay, now it reacts to that stimulus. The stimulus is the smell of the gulab jamuns, the sight of that gulab jamun store. That's the stimulus. Right. It goes into my mind, there's a reaction with my mind and intellect, and I start walking towards that store. That's the karma you act. So here he's talking about the food, receipt of the stimulus, reaction within your mind and intellect, and karma where you act. Um, and the last one is simpler. It says, when, when a perfectly controlled mind rests in the self alone, freed from desire for all objects, then and only then is it said to be established in yoga. So when we've attained the state, when our chitta, our mind, has come under our control, is silent and controlled, such a mind resides only in the self, totally detached from all other objects. Only then that person has reached the state of samadhi um, and keep the thoughts and attention on the Atman alone. So friends, that is uh, 18. And we've talked about a lot of what you need to do to meditate. And hopefully you will enjoy the next uh, few verses, which we will do next time. And I thank you for being with us and hope to see you again soon.